Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ilya Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to return today to a topic that we occasionally visit on this program, which is your home state and mine, as a matter of fact, of California. Um, you're still there, and I'm recording this in the middle of a Connecticut winter, which I still was. And I, I introduced that biographical note only to tee up my first question, uh, which is this. You and I, by dint of being natives, know California at a pretty detailed level. A lot of our listeners may as well, but a lot of them may also have only visited briefly or may have never been there at all. So they may know it primarily through its reputation in the popular imagination, which is, is usually pretty centered on Los Angeles and the Bay Area. It's a significantly more complex place than that. So if you were trying to paint a thumbnail sketch of the state as a whole for our listeners, uh, what would you say? Well, I'd say there's basically three parts. There's the coastal strip where all the money, all the population, the educational institutions, the industry, high tech, Hollywood, banking, Stanford, USC, all that stuff. And that's basically from Berkeley down to La Jolla, about 50 miles 25, 30, 50 miles inland. And then the second part is the center. And that's basically from Sacramento, a little bit north of the center of the state, all the way down uh, to the Inland Empire, east of Los Angeles. And you can throw in the Sierras too. And then that's where things are made in the sense of foods produced. What We have a lot of oil and gas in Bakersfield. We have... Uh, a lot of timber, we still have some mining, stuff like that. And that's probably about a quarter, a fifth of the population. And then we have the top third of the state is relatively empty. It's analogous to Oregon or southern Washington, even even less populated. No, nobody really goes up there much. It's very wet. It's a very beautiful area, but it's it's doesn't have a very big either productive uh, potential uh, and it's not a population center. I'm talking about Eureka, Crescent City, Red Bluff, stuff like that, north of Red Bluff. So those are the three parts, and there are three different cultures, although the, the north and the center are pretty much in line politically. If you look at the map of red-blue counties, it resembles the United States in general with one big caveat. Uh, it's a sea of red politically by geography, but the coastal strip, is got about you know thirty million people, so it's it's not only at odds with its own state; it's at odds with everything east of it that comprises the entire country. Now there is, as you've chronicled a number of times in the past, there's this real tension as a matter of politics and, and certainly culturally too. But we're focusing here on sort of the policy side. There's this tension that runs between the affluent coastal California and the interior parts of the state. And this manifests itself on several different fronts, and we can sort of take them piece by piece. But why don't we start off with environmental issues, especially because this has direct effects on California's farmers, of which you're one. So explain what effects a lawmaker in Sacramento has on the life of a farmer in the Central Valley. Well, most lawmakers are from Los Angeles or San Francisco, and their constituents are upper middle class and removed from the sources of their electricity, um, the sources of their water, the sources of their 
granite counters, their wood floors, and the food at, at Whole Foods. And so they're not really interested in how these things are made. They have reached a level of prosperity in which allows them and security to wonder whether these things are made in a way that they don't approve of, that doesn't make them feel good, makes them feel empty or icky or something. And so they legislate for the entire state where these productive industries are not you know, they don't have the population base, so they're not represented legislatively, and they don't have the clout. And that makes some pretty strange disconnects, as we've talked before, about diverting water out of the San Joaquin from agriculture, but not diverting water from Hetch Hetchy for water in San Francisco, or canceling high-speed rail or delaying it in Palo Alto, but making sure it starts as an experiment down in Hanford, or setting this, the country's highest kilowatt rates when you have 70 or 65 to 70 degree weather year-round and the people down elsewhere or inward don't. And so there's sort of two states and one has all the power and one suffers the consequences of that power. One issue that's been getting a lot of attention over the past year or two is the skyrocketing price of housing in California. And, and you regularly see these stories in the national press about these eye-popping costs, especially in the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. Although if you're along the coast in Southern California, in Los Angeles or Orange County or San Diego, it's not going to be much better. That might seem uh, at first blush like the hallmark of a place where people are beating down the doors to get in, but there are plenty of people heading for the exits too. And this may sort of initially look like a paradox, but fill us in on what's going on here. Well – People are leaving and people are coming, but they're very different economic groups. So if you're from Oaxaca, Mexico, or you're from Texas, or you're from Arizona, and, they, and they're clamping down on both questions of illegal immigration and entitlements, then California is the most generous state, so you want to go to California. And it looks like paradise compared to Mexico, for example. However, if you're upper middle class – and uh, you're in the San Joaquin Valley, and you don't like what's happened to your infrastructure, 49th in the country, your schools, 46th in the country, high-speed rails, a $100 billion boondoggle where your freeways don't work, then you're probably looking at uh, a way to get out of that 13% income tax. And that means Nevada, Texas, Florida, no income tax states. And they're leaving, and they're, ra- they're leaving at a rate of more than 100000 uh, net loss per year, which is kind of astounding when you think how beautiful California is and how non-beautiful Texas and Nevada are in comparison. And then you have people on the coast that are middle class that are leaving too. But that said, we have a we have companies with nearly a trillion dollar capital value like Apple and Google, and that's taken that global wealth and concentrated it in the Bay Area and to a lesser extent in Los Angeles. And they're just and when you combine that with environmental uh, restrictionism and you're not building new homes, you're basically pouring a lot of money into a pre existing housing market with natural population growth. Not a lot of people are going to the Bay Area, but natural population growth. And it means that a house in Fresno that's one hundred and fifty dollars a square foot is, you know, fifteen hundred ten times more three hours away. And I can t- testify. I have children, one of who lives in the coastal area and one who lives inland, and the, they're both trying to buy a house. And the one that's inland is looking at 
half the house for three times the price is the one that's uh, north of Fresno versus Monterey, Santa Cruz area. Now, Victor, California has been known as a pretty culturally liberal place for, for a long time, really, at least in some senses, going back to the 60s. But for a couple of decades there, especially after some of the violence we saw in the early 90s, California voters got a reputation for being pretty tough on crime. But the state has changed direction a little bit in recent years. Tell us what's been happening. Well, I mean, Jerry Brown's let out 2,000 um, life sentence felons, uh, prisoners, let them out on parole. And we've let tens of thousands of lesser offenses, so-called drug de- uh, offenses that are not violent, although many of them involve some form of violence. But the idea is that um, in terms of crime and it's spiking, the L.A. Chief, chief of Police and people in the California Council Police Chief has said it's gone up 15 percent. So what's happening is that uh, as you're bringing in a, a new demographic and you're le- you're losing the middle class infrastructure, the stability in these communities is eroding. Illegal immigration means a lot of people have not had a chance to assimilate, intermarry, integrate. And uh, when you're letting reducing sentences because it just postmodern prison systems doesn't work with pre-modern criminals. So uh, it's sort of a perfect storm. And the result is that uh, a lot of people are starting to get very angry because they're daily. I just talked to a person at Stanford today. His wife's credit card was stolen. He went to a stop and go market, used it in a bad neighborhood on a, on a trip. Next thing he knows, $900 in charge. My wife just had that happen to her. Uh, I just put letters in a mailbox in my hometown in front of the post office. Somebody broke in and stole them. I just caught a guy dumping his cleaning solvent uh, from his business in my uh, orchard. These are daily occurrences for a lot of people in California, and it's uh, it's becoming once again lawless. And the, qu- the big question mark is if it gets bad enough and uh, – in terms of crime, will the Latino middle class, and it's quite large now, um, look toward you know a Trumpian solution or at least somebody more conservative? Or will the environmental elite uh, coastal strip, will they think, you know what, I'm tired of paying $1,500 per square foot and then on top of that paying highest gas taxes, highest sales taxes, and 13% income when they just passed a proposition – you know, institutionalizing this supposedly temporary 13% tax, and then the governor just announced we're going to have a possible $2 billion deficit. So I think even a coastal elite says to himself, I may be very progressive, but my God, they're taking 13% of my income, and they're going to have a larger deficit after than before. Some of these examples that you're pointing to of dysfunction in, in your community, for instance, uh, this ties in with an interesting observation in the piece that you recently wrote about this where you, you really described two different cultures that coexist in California. But th- this isn't geographical. This isn't inland versus coastal. This is side by side because you say in this piece, quote, California is the most contentious, overregulated, and postmodern state in the union and also the most feral at 19th century. Te- tease out that contrast for us. Well – uh, right across the street from me, or at least a quarter mile down, there is one family who's, I would say, middle class. Their house burned down. Their brief building at one of their houses burned down. 
the county came out and said, you've got to drill a, a new well. We find that it's too close to your 100-year-old septic tank, and then you need to build a new septic tank. So they built a new septic tank, and they said, well, now that's okay. You're, you're, uh, you're under our new regulation of distance from a well, but now we discover you're too near your, your neighbor's well. And he said, well, why didn't you tell me? Well, we didn't know. So now you're going to have to cut off your new leash line. And then they do that. And they said, well, now your new leech line is too short and you're in between two wells and you can't build your home. If you go, I don't know, six, six or seven hundred yards away, there's a house uh, that has Romex wire streaming out of it into six Winnebago's. There's 40 potty, porta potties. The guy's a, partly a, one guy that lives there is a contractor. There's probably 40 people living there. Every single dwelling is illegal. There's no septic system at all. There's only one well for about eight families. Dogs are on license. And yet when this person said, well, why don't you go look at the other person, the, ins- the county inspector just shrugged. And his shrug meant California is feral, and I'm not going to go over there. These people may be violent. They may not speak English. Uh, they don't have any money. Even if I were to find them, you're the guy with a target on his back. And we always – basically, he was saying in California, we always go after the law-abiding misdemeanor and ignore the the hopeless felony. Felonies don't pay. Misdemeanors do. Which leads me to my final question for you today. A lot of people will listen to this and think – Victor's a successful guy. He's had a long and storied career, done well for himself, and here we are listening to these horror stories about what life in the Central Valley can be like. So why, Victor? Why why stick with it? Why, after everything you've described here, does California still have a pull for you? I don't know. Uh, I I, I love the Sierra Nevada, and I live in an area – three hours I can get to Stanford – uh, an hour I can get to the high Sierra, two hours I can get to the coast. That's good. But you've got a good point. I mean, I'm 63 and I'm sort of a prisoner of memory. I'm living in the same house I grew up in. It's been in my family for five generations. I used to think it was noble to re- I It's all remodeled. I put a port, most of my disposable income over the 30 years into the, the buildings, the barn, the, the land. But now I'm starting to think, wow, is this a, a a benefit for your son to take over, or is it a, a burden, an anchor? Because the schools are shot, the, the infrastructure is shot, crime is rising, and I don't see an immediate solution. Um, and I don't. And I, the reason I'm getting a little bit despairing is that when I see a problem and I see that people don't acknowledge the problem, or they know what the problem and the solution is, but the medicine is worse than the disease. Then I get kind of scared. And so I just talked to a county sheriff and he said, and you know, he just said, well, we have illegal aliens here and they don't have driver's licenses or if they do, they're fake. They don't have insurance. They don't have registration. They're not going to have that. They don't need to follow the laws. They have fake IDs. They have fake social security numbers. And we have a lot of felons that cannot be deported because we're a sanctuary county. And I didn't say that. If you quote me or you say that, I'm going to deny it because if anybody heard me say that, I'd be fired. And I said, I mean, you're fired for saying the truth. So, you know, just this week I saw that a classicist at the American Philological Association tried to suggest that I was a racist because I wrote Mexifornia. And in a scholarly sense, I wrote about agrarianism in the ancient world. And they said that my agrarians in ancient Greece were racist because they would have been against the illegal immigration just like I am. <laughs> so, wow. 
you kind of get tired after a while and I just kind of tune it out now. And if I were younger, I probably would sell out and move away. But uh, I'm 63. I, I grew up in this farm and I'm about once every week, I think, you know what? Maybe they'd shut down the border. Maybe people would assimilate. Maybe they'd integrate. Maybe they'd intermarry like it, it was working before open borders. And maybe we'd all just forget about our skin color and ethnic background and stop all these isms and ologies. And there would, wouldn't be such – there'd be no more – La Raza would be about as resonating as La Raza with two Zs that, for Italian-Americans today because uh, Mussolini had Raza as well as – the Hispanic Raza, but I don't, I don't see how we're going to get out of that because every single day I see hundreds of people who are so invested in the race, class, gender industry, and they're not, they have the money or the capital or the influence to shield them from the ideology, uh, consequences of their own ideology. So they don't live where I do, but they love the situation that led to what I see every day. They just don't want to live it. They they like to talk about it, but it's an abstraction for them. Kind of right. like it's fake news. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A sobering note. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning into the Classes podcast. Join us here again next week for the next installment. And in the meantime, you can visit hoover.org to find all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.